the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Jesus honestly mean that we're to go around hating our immediate family members? No, it's a comparative statement. He's saying, if you don't love me more than anyone else, you can't be my disciple. It's strong language, but it's a comparative statement. It's not saying actually to go around hating them any more than it's saying here in, in, in Romans 9 that he hated Esau. He's just saying in terms of his overall sovereign purposes, Jacob was a man who was more inclined to the spirit. And so God accepted him. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Romans. You're to love God more than you love your family. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Pastor Gary teaches you that Jesus didn't say this with the intention of having you hate your family, but he said it to make the point that you must prioritize God over everything else. Jesus sets this as the standard because he knows that when you're right with God, all other things will fall into place. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Romans chapter 9 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Romans chapter 9, we left off in the middle of this chapter, again, just kind of building on where Paul has uh, brought us to this point. He's made a brilliant argument in the first eight chapters about man's sinfulness, man's sinful condition. He even says in the first couple of chapters that every single one of us is without excuse because if we're a Jew, we have the commandments. If we're a Gentile, we have a conscience and all of us have creation. And God has revealed himself through the commandments, through our conscience and through creation so that, as Paul says uh, in the first couple of chapters, uh, all of us are without excuse. So he builds the case that God exists, that God is real, and then he moves into the fact that the human condition that the Bible describes is that we are all sinners. In chapter 3, he talks about this in verse 23, where he said, For all have sinned, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God, his perfect standard. None of us measures up to the perfect standard of God. But then he adds, although all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that we are justified freely 
by his grace through the redemption that came through Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the answer to the sinful condition of humanity. That's the argument that he's making. And between chapters 3 and 4, he uses the word faith 20 times. Because it is not about works. It is not about striving, trying to be a good enough person so that God will like you and love you and save you. It is about faith in what Jesus did for us on the cross. We can't improve upon it. We didn't deserve it. We don't earn it in any way. But God did it because of his love for us. And then he opens the opportunity for as many to be saved as who would receive this free gift. But you have to exercise faith that Jesus died on your behalf because none of us was good enough to get to God. So God sends his son Jesus, dies on a cross, and then says to us, in effect, I will accept the sacrifice of my son in your place. I will put the punishment intended for you on him. Though he was without sin, I will take your sin and I will place it on him and he will stand in the gap between a holy God and sinful humanity to bridge that great distance and that if you would put your trust in this redemptive plan through the finished work of Jesus, you can be saved. Amen to that? Amen. And then he continues to build on it. He says in Romans six, uh, in chapter 6, verse uh, 23... He says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift, remember we talked about this, it is a gift, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, so that's the first eight chapters. He, he just builds this argument wonderfully to establish our own guilt, to establish the fact that the free gift of salvation comes through faith in Jesus. We can't work our way to heaven. We can't approve, improve upon the cross. This is what God has done for us. And then chapter 9, he shifts a little bit because he is concerned for the nation of Israel. In particular, specifically, we're speaking about the Jews. Now, Paul himself is a Jew, but he realizes that his message is falling on ears that are, diff that are receiving his message with some uh, animosity towards Paul because Paul, in effect, is going against everything that the Jews up to this point thought was the way to be righteous. And what they thought was, you obey all the laws. There are 613 mitzvahs, laws, in the Old Testament, when you add them all up. 613. And the Jews believe that if you obey all of these 613 laws, you'll be righteous. But who can do that? Who can do that? Now, we don't throw the law out because the law was given by God. But the Bible says that the law was put in effect to lead us to Christ. Because the law is like a mirror. And it shows us, it exposes us in ways that we hadn't seen before. It's kind of like a, the law is like a thermometer. That it, it measures that you are sick. It shows that you have a fever. It doesn't cure you. The thermometer doesn't cure you. It just points out that you have a, a, an issue, that you have a, an infection or you have something wrong with you. That's, that's the effect of the law. The law can't cure you. The law can't make you righteous. It just points out that there's something wrong with you. There's a condition that, that we all have, and it's sin. We're dying from it. But because the Jews had been so faithful to practice the laws, and then Paul comes along and says, listen, you're not made righteous by obeying the laws. You're made righteous because you put your trust and faith in what Jesus did for you. And now what it causes some Jews, he's anticipating, what it causes some Jews to think is, well, then has God gotten it wrong all these years? Because God made a covenant with Israel, and the, and the Jewish people are God's chosen people. 
And so if, if, they, if there's a different way here to be made righteous, then has God gotten it wrong? Have the Jewish people gotten it wrong? And so he starts out chapter 9 by saying, and this is a very personal, he's pouring out his heart. He means this sincerely. He says there in chapter 9, verse 2, he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race. Talking about the Jews. He's saying, if there was some way that I could take the penalty for them not believing so that they might be saved, I'd do it in a minute. But he says, you know, you can't do that. You can't stand in somebody else's place. He says, that's how much, though, my heart breaks for my own Jewish people. They don't receive Jesus. They don't accept Jesus, by and large, he's saying. Not everyone, but by and large. And that is a true statement today. By and large, the majority of Jews do not accept that Jesus is Messiah. But there is a good number and an increasing number of Jews who do accept that Jesus is Messiah. And so Paul says, don't get me wrong, I love my own people. He says, I wish that there was some way I could take the penalty for them. I wish I could be cursed on their behalf. But he says that they're going to have to come into a personal place. But then he talks here about how God has not forsaken his promise to the Jewish people. And he's going to talk in chapters 9, 10, and 11 about the Jewish people and about Israel in general. And, um, and so he builds this argument. And he talks about how on a national level, God has not forgotten his promises to the Jewish people because God in his infinite plan is merciful. Now, chapter 9 is a chapter in my Bible, I pointed this out last week, that is subtitled God's Sovereign Choice. And a lot of Christians today love to read chapter 9 and emphasize the sovereignty of God. And that's even the subtitle of chapter 9 in my Bible and in most of yours. But again, as I mentioned last week, the word sovereign is not mentioned one time in the book of Romans. Now, having said that, answer out loud, is God sovereign, yes or no? Yes, God is completely sovereign. He can do whatever he wants. He's in complete control of everything. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing, okay? We understand this about the character of God. He is sovereign. But the word that Paul wants us to really understand from this chapter is mercy, because the word mercy is found 10 times through the book of Romans, seven of those 10 times between chapters 9, 10, and 11. The emphasis is not on God being sovereign and thus choosing some to be saved and some not to be saved. The emphasis that Paul wants us to recognize is it's about God's mercy, how God opens salvation to all to be saved, though there are some who in the exercise of their free will, man's responsibility, will reject him. And because God knows all things, he knows those in advance who will accept him and those who will reject him. That was Romans 8, 29. For those he uh, predestined, he said, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. You cannot talk about predestination without talking about foreknowledge. They go hand in hand. 1 Peter 1 verse, let me get the reference right, verse 2 says that we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. So the whole concept of chosen and election and predestination are words in the Bible. But we cannot understand those words absent from understanding foreknowledge. God does not violate the free will that he offered for every human being to exercise. All of us have a choice. We either choose him or we reject him. 
don't have this fatalistic view of God that he has selected some to be saved and some to be damned. Again, as I mentioned last week, John Wesley said that if God chooses a select number to be saved, it's double damnation. He is therefore then causing some to be saved and and then sentencing others to hell, to damnation. And that's just inconsistent with the whole counsel of God's word when you look at all of it. You can pluck a verse out here and there that talks about and emphasizes the sovereignty of God, election and choice. But if you do that, absent the whole counsel of God, you've taken a text out of the context. And we need to understand balance. You know the problem in a lot of churches today, and this is something we have to guard against ourselves, is getting in the extremes. And when Christians live in the extremes, it's either this liberalism or this legalism. We do a complete injustice to the balance of the Word of God. We need to be people who live in the balance. We don't want to have this liberal theology, but we don't want to have legalistic theology either. We don't want to only emphasize God's sovereignty, though He is, and we don't want to only emphasize man's responsibility, though we are. We need to understand both of those in the spectrum of all things concerning Scripture, and God keeps that tension intact on purpose. We may not always understand where is that line between his sovereignty and man's responsibility, but we need to do as much as depends on us in terms of our responsibility, and we defer to the sovereignty of God as as much as that is on him. And where that line always is, I don't know. So all I know is i got to do my part to be responsible and to exercise choice and to walk in the Spirit and to crucify the flesh. And, you know, not that I'm earning my salvation, but that I'm wanting to please my Father who died for me on a cross. And so my life is in response to his sovereign act of mercy. That's the emphasis here. Mercy. So he talks about, I chose Isaac, not Ishmael. He says in this chapter, I chose Jacob, not Esau, even though Isaac and Jacob were the younger sons. Isaac was the younger son of Abraham because Ishmael was the firstborn of Abraham, though not by the will of God, but by the flesh, Ishmael was older. God says, however, Isaac is my sovereign choice for the purpose of the plan of redemption. Jacob and Esau, again, they're twins. Esau was born first, Jacob was second. But God said, but as far as my sovereign purposes, it is Jacob. That I chose. Now, did he chose? Did he choose Jacob? Because God just indiscriminately decided, I'm going to choose Jacob, and I don't want to choose Esau. Or did he choose Jacob? Because knowing all things, he already knew that Esau was a man of the flesh, and a man of the flesh is not going to complete the sovereign work of God. So the answer is yes. I mean, it's both in operation. But that's one of the places I left off last week, so I just want to clarify. Look at verse 13 of chapter 9, because speaking about Jacob and Esau, he says here, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. All right, I didn't know God was a hater. What is that in the Bible for? Well, it's not in the sense of loving and hating like we think. It's a comparative statement. And he's saying that in terms of his divine sovereign purposes... He accepted one, Jacob, who though he was a deceiver, was a man more after God's heart, certainly than his brother Esau, who was a man completely of the flesh. He accepted one and rejected another in terms of his sovereign purposes. But it's a comparative statement, just like, you don't need to turn, but just like Jesus said in John, uh, sorry, Luke 14, 26. Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters. Yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. 
Now, does Jesus honestly mean that we're to go around hating our immediate family members? No, it's a comparative statement. He's saying, if you don't love me more than anyone else, you can't be my disciple. It's strong language, but it's a comparative statement. It's not saying actually to go around hating them any more than it's saying here in, in, in Romans 9 that he hated Esau. He's just saying in terms of his overall sovereign purposes, Jacob was a man who was more inclined to the spirit. And so God accepted him and used him for his purposes. Whereas Esau was a man more inclined to the flesh. And so God rejected him. But God knew all that in advance anyway. So they're chosen and rejected according to his foreknowledge. Everybody with me so far? All right, if I haven't lost you yet, let's keep reading. Maybe I will as we go through the chapter. And that's no reflection on you. That's a reflection on me. So he goes on to say, verse 16, because he's going to use another example about Pharaoh. He says in verse 16, it does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy, it being salvation, right? So we've got that clear. It doesn't depend on your desire or your effort, your works, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Now again, this looks like a passage that looks pretty fatalistic. And uh, if you're not familiar with the story, basically the Jews suffered under slavery for 400 years under Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Okay, in the Old Testament, book of Exodus. And as a way of setting the Jewish slaves free, God used a series of ten plagues to get Pharaoh to the place where he was willing, albeit grudgingly, to let the, the Hebrew slaves go. Now, when it speaks here about God hardening whom he wants to harden, someone's heart, and God having mercy on someone that he wants to have mercy... Don't interpret that to mean that God just, again, fatalistically decided that Pharaoh was an was a dispensable, I should say, was a dispensable human being. And so I'll just use Pharaoh as my tool, and, I, and I'll get him to, to do what he does. And in his rebellion, I will glorify myself, and then I'm just done with him. Okay, almost like a God who just, you know, doesn't have compassion or concern about human life. No, he cares about Pharaoh. You know how much he cares about Pharaoh? He issued 10 different plagues. And when you study the Bible and look at all the 10 plagues, each one of them confronted a false god of the Egyptians. And you know why he was doing that? Because he wanted Pharaoh to realize that he was the true and living God and not the gods that they had trusted. Even the 10th plague was a confrontation on Pharaoh himself because the Pharaoh was presented to the Egyptians as a reincarnation of the sun god Ra. And so the death of the firstborn is taking God because Pharaoh's son, the firstborn, was taken and in effect saying, your God is not, is not stronger than the true and living God. But please note, in the Bible, Exodus 7 through 11 are the lists of the 10 plagues. In the first five plagues, it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. When did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Plagues 6 through 10. In other words, what God did was, he said basically this, Pharaoh, if you were going to deny me as the true and living God, if that's the bent of your heart, 
and you refuse to acknowledge who I am, then I will glorify myself through your rebellious heart. Pharaoh hardened his own heart, first five plagues. God said, okay, is that the way you're going to be? Then I will glorify myself through the stubbornness of your heart, through the stubbornness of your disbelief, I will glorify myself. And thus, the last few plagues, God did harden Pharaoh's heart. But it is not because God violated his free will. Pharaoh exercised his free will, first five plagues, and therefore God said, if that's your disposition, if that's how you're bent, then I will use your disposition for the benefit of the glory of myself so that all the rest of Egypt might know that I am the true and living God. And so Paul gives this example here, but not one of fatalism, one of choice that was exercised by Pharaoh, And God will glorify himself either by his mercy or by the way that he uses someone's rebellion against him as a way to highlight that he is Lord. Verse 19, Paul anticipates, one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? All right, so in other words, he's saying, okay, all this emphasis on God's choice might cause some people to say, well, then, you know, why do we need to do anything? Then if God's going to choose it all for us, then, then maybe none of it's on us. And verse 20, he first gives a little scolding. He goes, well, who are you, old man, to talk back to God, all right? So no, you know, no smack talk about God here, all right? He says, that's disrespectful. He says, shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right God being the potter, does God, does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? Okay, God, God can glorify himself as he sees fit, in other words. You know, you, you don't tell God that he can only glorify himself when he shows mercy. Sometimes when he shows justice, he glorifies himself. Verse 22, what if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction okay in other words and it doesn't say that god prepared them for destruction you know for, they did a good job on their own but he's, he's just speaking in general terms he says what if god who can show his wrath and make his power known what if he has patience on the objects of wrath on people who deserve his wrath who are prepared for destruction verse 23 what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Now he's going to stretch the Jewish mind even more here because it's enough for the Jewish people to realize, you mean salvation and and righteousness isn't coming by the obedience of the law? Now Paul's going to interject the Gentiles. He goes, yeah, guess what? It's all by faith. Because it's, a, it's the cross, which is the message of grace that anybody can receive. It's a gift, and it's not just for you Jews. He says it's for the Gentiles too. He go on, he says, as he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. Now again, he's using here an example of mercy. And he's, he's quoting the, these couple of verses from the prophet Hosea. From Hosea, he's saying, he's saying, look, God also, by the way, can have mercy on the Gentile people. They're not a people that he calls his own, but yet he can call them his loved ones. And verse 26, it will happen that in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. It's another example of mercy. 
He says in verse 27, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been like Gomorrah. What does he mean here? What he means here is, he's talking about, and they would be familiar with their own history, there's plenty of times when Israel was in direct rebellion against God, sinning to the max. And God says, despite this, he didn't destroy him completely. Romans teaches that living for Jesus isn't just something you say with your mouth. It's an entire lifestyle change. Your heart and your mind are made new through the powerful grace and love of Jesus. You begin to want to do things as Jesus has, and that includes knowing what he says in the Word. It's important to make spending time in the Bible part of your life. You'll learn more about the Savior you follow and his plans for your life and for the world as a whole. We're so glad you tuned in today for Pastor Gary Hamrick's message on Cornerstone Connection. If you'd like to listen again to this study in Romans, visit cornerstoneconnection.cc. While you're there, you'll be able to learn more about this ministry and the church behind it all. Are you in the Leesburg area? If so, we'd love to have you come join us for our weekly services at Cornerstone Chapel. We meet each week on Sundays at 8.30, 10, and 11.45 a.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Come meet Pastor Gary, spend some time in the Word, and join us as we lift our voices in praise to our King. Directions to Cornerstone Chapel can be found on our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. With that, our time with you has come to an end for today. We hope you'll join us again for this continuing study of Romans right here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know You're not alone Real love is calling Listen, truth opens up your eyes Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.